It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the. And there's a. Now that's a follow up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow up question right there. If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. We cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Irish pulled out a 12-7 victory in a Saturday snoozer against an underachieving Louisville team, but now the Irish will play against a defense that's actually good on Saturday at Pittsburgh, so we'll see how the Irish fare this time around. Uh, while the marquee matchup will be Notre Dame's running game versus Pittsburgh's run defense, uh, we wanted to take some time to discuss the struggling Irish passing game right now. So that's why we invited former Notre Dame wide receiver Bobby Brown back onto the podcast. Bobby, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, it, you know, I ca- you called it a snooze fest. That might be it being very nice. Uh, <laughs> it was definitely an interesting game, man. But thanks for having me back, guys. I always love being with you guys. You bet. I, I, I wanted to start just in general of, of your impressions of Notre Dame's passing game through four games. What Are you surprised at how it's looked, or um, were you expecting maybe some inefficiency given this strange offseason? I was expecting some early inefficiency, but at this point, uh, you know, those those previous four to six weeks of being together, not including the fall camp, although it was a modified fall camp, I, I thought by now we would see some of the dust wear off and some of the cobwebs wear off and there would be more timing. Uh, each of the last few seasons, there's been a receiver that has ascended out of the, the out of the blue, if you will, including, you know, Chase Claypool, who just just came on like wildfire. You know, so I, I thought that we would have one person that that would do that again this year, and it hasn't happened yet. So I have been surprised, and and hopefully they can turn the corner um, because Pittsburgh's defense, like you said, is, is real stingy on the run. Bobby, you know, they have 11 receivers on their roster and and they usually kind of go into the season with ambitions of having a pretty deep rotation and then it kind of settles into a smaller rotation. As, a, as someone that played wide receiver in college, how easy or difficult is it to be part of a larger rotation? Is that ever real realistic? Normally what you see and, and – you know, again, you didn't have spring football in its normal form. You didn't have fall camp in its normal form. But when you have a rotation that deep, normally what you see is that the practice becomes an audition and the receivers are really competing against one another. Every catch becomes that much more important because you're trying to separate yourself from the next person in the rotation. And, uh, because of this pandemic, I have not been able to get to a practice or be on campus and see if that is happening. But when you see the product on the field on Saturdays, it just looks as though there's no real competition. Everyone is satisfied with where they are. 
and it looks as though mediocrity is, is where they are, to be to be frank. Um, there weren't a lot of people getting open on Saturday. They went with a bigger receiver core as the top guys in that rotation. And it just didn't – it just doesn't seem as though there's a lot of fighting to, to ascend the ranks. Um, and – that that's normally what you see with the, with the receiving core that's that deep is that each practice, each rep, each opportunity becomes an audition, and you're fighting to separate yourself from the next person. Bobby, when you were developing chemistry with your quarterbacks, how much of that was beyond just what you guys did in practice? Was it sort of how you guys knew each other off the field and got to know each other beyond just uh, what you were doing between the lines? And do you think that? with the, the limitations that Notre Dame has and the precautions they're taking of making sure no one is, is uh, contracting COVID and, and spreading it to each other, do you think that maybe that could play a role in, in some of the, the inconsistencies that the, the quarterback and wide receivers are having right now? Absolutely. It is, it is a, a marriage, if you will, right? You, you, there is no absolute way to perfect the timing and the relationship with your quarterback. It's, not, it's sort of a trial and error thing. So the more reps you get at it, and I compare this to marriage because uh, I have to apologize to my wife daily for doing something wrong, but it's it's sort of trial and error. And the more time that you spend together, the more mistakes that you make and apologize for making those mistakes, but then overcoming those mistakes, um, the, the, the better you will be as a, a couple as a receiver and a wide and a quarterback. And so, yeah, I mean, COVID definitely has impacted that. Uh, to, to, to be frank, I mean, you know, our quarterback um, was Jerry Jackson. I, I took it so seriously that, you know, every single summer I was either in Tupelo, Mississippi, where he's from, or, you know, uh, he was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where I'm from. And sometimes we did both. We would drive to Tupelo, then I'd say, let's keep on trucking, man. Let's go down to Fort Lauderdale. But one thing was for certain, I knew I had to have that timing right with the quarterback. And Malcolm Johnson, who, uh, in the spirit of competition, and wanted to be the number one receiver on the other side while I was fighting to be the number one receiver, um, somehow, some way, he snuck into our luggage and he got in the car. He made sure he was in Fort Lauderdale, too. And with the pandemic, you can't do that. And that that's a challenge. And, and we went even further. We, we were roommates on campus where – the normal college experience, living together, uh, going to each other's homes through, throughout the summer, uh, it's all been altered by the pandemic. And um, uh, that is ter- absolutely true, but it's true for everyone. And so I think the players just have to come to terms with, we got to make plays. That's what this is. It's a, it's a make plays type of business. And these young receivers have to do that. That's the only way Ian Book is going to become comfortable. That's the only way the offense is going to take off is that we, we start throwing the ball downfield and those receivers become a threat. Bobby, if you're kind of putting together the three receivers you want on the field the most, are you looking at experience or, you know, and some of their most experienced receivers aren't their fastest receivers. Some of their right. best athletes are younger guys with not a lot of experience. So how do you, you're putting that together if you're deciding who the personnel is going to be how do you measure pure talent and speed versus the experience I think those are the type of things that you would do in a normal year you would look at the size and the speed and come up with some calculation of who you want on the field at any given time together and I think that's what uh, Brian Kelly was trying to do in this game against Louisville but 
again, all bets are off this year. I, I would look at a guy who didn't play much, if at all, on Saturday, a Joe Wilkins Jr., who, when given the opportunities because of the pandemic, he stepped up and made plays. He's not the biggest. He's not the fastest. But he made plays. And in this weird year, I think you just got to find the guys that are making the plays. You've got some experience and size and a Javon McKinley and uh, Ben, I always mess up his name, Skoronek, I guess that's how you pronounce it. Skoronek. Skoronek, that's how you pronounce it. Uh, my apologies, Ben. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure that's happened. You got him ben right. Before. Right, he got the Ben <laughs> part right. And I struggled with that a few times too, Eric, to be honest. <laughs> um, you got Kevin Austin coming back from injury. These are guys that on paper look like the perfect combination of big, fast, uh, and especially with, with Javon and Ben, uh, you have the experience, but it just it, it just isn't working, to be honest. Uh, so I, I would try. Uh, I would love to see Braden, uh, Lindsey on the field more because of his speed, but I, I'm assuming something is not working in practice. He's not showing something he, because we don't see He was hurt. He was so hurt. I, okay. Yeah, okay. he's coming back from a hammy. Okay. All right. Well, when you have that much speed, I guess that's an injury that goes along with that speed, but – um, I don't think it has to be the the scientific version of the combination because there normally is a scientific version. I want a big receiver on the outside. I want someone that can find the zones and be quick and get in and out of breaks on the inside. And, and again, it's just such a weird year. I think you just find the person that, that has stepped up and made plays and continually create a, a competitive environment because – uh, I, I don't see a lot of competition at the position right now. And that's the unfortunate part because we have been spoiled over the last few years with a receiver just coming out of the ashes from nowhere, becoming a mega superstar. And two years ago, no one would have bet that Chase Claypool would be the leading candidate for NFL rookie of the year right now. Um, and I think that competitive environment is missing in this receiving core. Bobby, I'm curious what you think uh, of Ian Book and his role in all this. How much responsibility falls on him, and is it asking too much for him to just go out there and make plays and not be uh, – maybe not play with as much fear, even though he, he maybe doesn't have as much confidence in his receivers that he'd like to have? Um, look, uh, the quarterback gets a lot of the glory, so – what comes with that on the other side of the coin is a lot of the blame. So I think Ian Book does deserve his fair share of, um, you know, uh, he has to make the throws a little bit better. He's got his timing should be a little bit better. You can't be a yard or two off with this group of receivers and tight ends because they're all young and inexperienced in the passing game. You've got to be more accurate than ever. Um but it it, it, is a, it, is, it is definitely also on the shoulders of the receivers to make plays for them because with that comes confidence. And so it's sort of the chicken and the egg. Do you want him to just throw in tight windows before these receivers have, have established the credibility uh, for him to do so? You know, human nature kicks in. Ian Book wants to put his team in the best position to win, and he doesn't want to turn the ball over. And if he feels as though those receivers won't make those catches in tight positions, then he's not going to, he's not going to take the chances and make those throws. And maybe the overthrows and the underthrows again are a byproduct of just not having the, the, the belief in them just yet. So um, it's tough to say how much of it should go on Ian's shoulders and how much of it is just the receivers not getting separation. 
But I tell you what, uh, in the ACC with a lot of teams playing well, Pittsburgh, I think, played very well last week against Miami. You don't have a lot of time to get it right. So they need to figure it out, figure it out quick, because the, the running game is clicking on all cylinders. And uh, the, the passing game needs to do the same in order to make sure that they can continue winning games. Bobby, do you think it is fixable without a – I mean, they don't have a bye week until, you know, pretty deep into November. Um, so, right. uh, you know, is this something you can fix kind of on the fly going week to week, do you think? I, I'm hoping after the game they looked at the scores and they see Clemson puts up 73, I mean, 73 points, and it gets everyone's attention because – while you can't look ahead in the schedule, human nature, again, kicks in with, you know, 19 and 22-year-old kids and uh, young adults. And uh, I hope that that was a wake-up call for them because you can't score 12 points and expect to win the big games. But with no bye week in sight for the few – the coming weeks um, – it becomes every practice, every rep is that much more important. It, and that's just, I can't overstate that. It, 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 they got to create basically um, spring football atmosphere throughout the week. Let's compete. Let's absolutely positively compete. And I think that's the only thing that's going to improve this receiving core it, is a competitive landscape. How much difference can a position coach make in that whole formula, a wide receiver coach? And and how much did your wide receiver coach make a difference for you? And we know who that was part of your career. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and the guy you're referring to is none other than Urban Meyer. And he definitely was up in our face. He definitely challenged us. He created a spring football atmosphere throughout the season. He, during games sometimes, you know, I remember a Stanford game where he just, uh, made an impromptu speech and said, hey, man, um, you know, they've got the best four receivers in the stadium today. And, you know, at that moment, you, you know, we're competitive, man. Testosterone kicks in. We were all like, what? What are you talking about? They're not better than us. And, and uh, you know, it sort of clicked us, click, sort of clicked the light on right then and there. And I think the receiver coach has a big role in it. I think he has a big role in it. And I, I hope that, again, the, the players respond to it. Um, Urban Meyer had a way that is an infamous style of coaching that was right in your face. It was a brash delivery, but at the end of the day, he got results. And I think it is upon the receiving co receiving um, coach's job. It's in the, his job purview to get the best out of his players. And then, you know, it all, it all trickles up in the sense that um, Brian Kelly has to welcome that environment. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's time. The time is now. None of the positions want to be known as the weakest link. You know, again, and, I, and, I, and I'll keep saying the word, but we're competitive, man. No one wants to be known as the weakest link. And it, the receivers right now are considered the weakest link on that team. So what are you going to do about it? You can't hide from it. You can't pad the stats or pretend it didn't exist. The fact that our leading receiver had two catches says something. So what are you going to do about it? Yeah, and I, I, Bobby, I think a lot of this comes down – or a lot of this discussion is because of this question. Can Notre Dame compete with the Alabamas, the Clemsons, the Ohio States with just a dominant defense in a running game? Or does the, the modern game sort of require more balance and, and more explosive plays in the passing game? What's your, what are your thoughts on that? 
it absolutely requires more explosive plays. The modern game requires you to open up the field um, because at any given moment, if your opponent is scoring, uh, whether it be in the any phase of the game, any phase of the game, if they're scoring and you're down double digits, you can't rely on a running game. You, you've got to score as well. And we will get into, not probably, we absolutely will get into a shootout at some point this year. And receivers have to make plays in a shootout. You can't rely on the tight ends. You can't rely on the backs. you got to be able to throw the, the ball down the field more than 15 yards. And I've seen very little evidence that we're capable of doing that right this second. But at the same time, I think with every week, hopefully it comes more confidence. Um, but, yeah, the modern game will not allow you to just line up and, and keep the ball the entire game. Uh, these offenses are scoring. And so, uh, you know, a part of your strategy is to have a, a stout defense, but a part of every team, college football team strategy, winning teams, the top uh, teams that are going to be in the college football playoffs this year, a part of that strategy also has to be score. When you score, we're going to go back and, and score as well and, and may the best offense win. Right now, we're not in contention as, as being one of those best offenses. So it seems – unrealistic that we will be uh, able to fight with the Alabamas and the Clemsons of the world. My prediction is that track meet game is going to be the North Carolina game. I think that's the one where they're going to get in the shootout uh, in late November because North Carolina can't play defense, but they can play offense pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we'll see. I mean, North Carolina had a little bump in the road here. We'll, we'll see. Um, those programs that are heading in the right direction but aren't there yet, we'll see what happens with their confidence because they are also dealing with the pandemic. You know, players are calling home and getting bad news about family members contracting it. They're also limiting their their uh, normal college experience. So I think their confidence is, is in a team like that is even more fragile. So we'll see what they do next week in response. Do you do you like this one year? experiment in the ACC are you eager to see Notre Dame go back to a national schedule next year the lawyer answer is it depends um the, <laughs> you know, my, my, my my real football answer should be no I, I don't like it but because I like needling my friends and telling them how Notre Dame is so special and making them hate me even more, I love it because I want them to see that Notre Dame is capable of doing things that only Notre Dame could do. And to join the conference for one year uh, is interesting. But I think, um, you know, more seriously, I do think that this gives the athletic department uh, sort of a sample set of what a relationship with a conference will look like. And so maybe the decision won't be made next year, but at least – uh, whether it be Jack or whoever the athletic director is at the time when this comes up again, at least they'll have some information to draw the decision upon. Bobby, I wanted to go back a little bit to when you were talking about sort of creating competition in practice. Notre Dame has some freshmen that, that are, are talented that potentially could contribute to the team, but I haven't really had many opportunities so far. Do you, do you think it would be beneficial to get those guys involved or is it more beneficial to try and improve on the guys that Notre Dame has at least more trust in so far right now? I, I, I would go with the, the former. I say let the, the young players play, especially, again, with the unique, unique circumstances of eligibility not being counted against them this year. Uh, and having some wiggle room around this unique pandemic year 
I would put the players out there and I think, you know, sort of have a version of, again, spring football right there in live action on national television will, will force them into being more comfortable when the spotlight is fully upon them. And the other, the other thing is, I mean, you, you're not losing much, to be honest. I mean, I think Javon McKinley is a serviceable receiver, but um, Chase Claypool, he is not, not yet. And so I don't think you lose much, and, and there's a lot to gain from getting young players on the field early and often, putting them in a position uh, to make a play. And uh, that's the only way you can get people ready for prime time is you put them in, in that, that, that hot seat and give them an opportunity. Bobby, I know you got your hands in a lot of different things these days. Give us a list of all <laughs> what you're doing. If if I knew everything, I wouldn't feel so discombobulated all the time. But I am, you know, obviously I, I'm still working and, and and providing for the family. And I'm fortunate enough to do that. And uh, in addition to it, just creating my own content with my weekly podcast that I do uh, and knocking on doors. So I appreciate this opportunity to be here. And I like to take opportunities to um be on other platforms and and knocking on doors, some of the the traditional you know sports broadcasting doors that that we all know of, uh, knocking on them and knocking on them loudly. So if anyone hears this and wants to give me an opportunity, uh, Eric has my number. <laughs> yeah. And you're also coaching your son, right? Yes, and in between all my craziness, uh, I I am the head coach of the nine and under. Uh, mighty might East Orange Junior Jaguars team, and to say that that's a blessing, man, is is an understatement. I, I get the the blessing of going out there on the field and uh, coaching a team that is quarterbacked by my son, and 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 be influential and impactful to young people's lives, and and it's great, man. It helps me sleep a little better at night, uh, knowing that I'm doing some good in the world. And the name of your podcast is Ball Hog Sports Talk. Is that correct? Ball Hog Sports Talk. Uh, you know, yeah, that's what it is. Ball Hog Sports Talk with your boy B Brown, ESQ, aka the Ball Hog, aka the Mouth of the South, aka Mister Excessive Celebration. Yeah, I say that once or twice on my uh, podcast. So if you ever hear me uh, in in action, you'll 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 hear that introduction. But love doing it, having a lot of fun doing it. Um, yeah, and you can catch us Facebook Live, YouTube Live. And yeah, you, you can search us with that hashtag, Ball Hog Sports Talk, all one word in the hashtag. And uh, I promise that it will be uh, an exhilarating experience if you do decide to join us. It, it's a lot of fun and I enjoy it. All right. Well, hopefully it provides more entertainment than that 12 to 7 game that we watched. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot for your time, Bobby. That's all we got for you. Uh, we always appreciate when you uh, take some time to join us. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate you inviting me to, to participate. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame Pittsburgh. First one I have for us, Eric, is will Ian Book throw an interception? Well, he's been good at not throwing interceptions this year, but Pittsburgh is really good at getting you to throw them. They've got two excellent safeties and DeMar Hamlin and Paris Ford, and they also have the pressure to make you throw interceptions. They're second in the country in sacks, and they get you in third and long because they're the number one rush defense in the country. So I'm going to say yes. Yeah, I'm going with yes as well. I, I know Ian Book doesn't throw a lot, but I think sort of the reasons you highlighted. Um, and he also he got away with a couple throws last week that probably should have been intercepted. 
Um, so I think he's kind of walking that a thin line there. And I think, I, I think it, it might even be an encouraging sign if he's like pu- trying to push the ball down the field and trying to make plays. Um, I think sometimes I would, I would almost rather see that than t- to him uh, throwing the ball away or, or running around the pocket and getting sacked. So um, certainly in the, in this specific game, they can't afford to have many of those, but I think it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if Ian Book did have a couple more interceptions here or there, if it meant that the, he was taking more chances in the passing game and, and giving his receivers maybe more chances to make some plays. So um, I will go with yes. Um, Pitt is tied for third in the country with eight interceptions. Um, that's partially because they've actually played six full games, which not a lot of teams can say, um, but they, they have been very good at uh, – intercepting uh, opposing quarterbacks. Next one is over under 161 rushing yards for Notre Dame. Well, again, Pitt's number one in the country um, at rush defense, and they're allowing about 61, 62 yards a game. Notre Dame is number seven in the country in rushing offense. I think if there's a team that can run into a loaded box, Besides Wisconsin, I think Notre Dame probably is that team. Um, when I look at how teams have beaten Pittsburgh this year, it's because their quarterbacks have put up big numbers through the air and a lot of downfield throws, which I'm not sure how that's mm-hmm. going to play out with Ian Book. So I think they're going to have to lean more on their run game. I think they'll barely eke over that uh, mark that you said. So I'm going to go over, but not by much. Yeah, I'm going to go over as well. I think this game will determine how legit Notre Dame's running game is. If, if, if Notre Dame can continue to run the ball like it has, um, this, this will really say a lot. And I think if I'm siding with Notre Dame will be up for the task. One of the advantages of sort of running into a, a, a loaded box is that if you get the crease that you're looking for, you can be past everyone, everyone on the field pretty quickly there. All right. Um, Tyree and Kyron Williams could have chances to to break open big runs if if they can find the right lanes that they're looking for and the offensive line can create those. Yeah, and see, I mean, I think that's the difference between having Kyron Williams and Tyree on the field and Tony Jones Jr. because there wasn't a lot of there weren't a lot of breakaway runs. I think Tony's long run of his career came very late in his last game in the Camping World Bowl. But other than that, and I, part of that was just because he was kind of pushing people. But, yeah, they can make you pay with those creases. All right. Next one I have for us is over under two and a half sacks allowed by Notre Dame. Well, Louisville got three, right? Correct. And so Pittsburgh's better at it than Louisville. (laughs) And, And Pittsburgh gave Notre Dame trouble the last time Book faced them. He And they weren't a great defense at that point. I think Pat Narduzzi just will dial up something that's going to be difficult. I don't think it's because Notre Dame's offensive line necessarily won't hold up. I think Ian Book is going to be confused by some of the looks he gets, and that's going to lead to sacks. So I'm going to say over. Yeah, I'm going over as well. Um, And I kind of agree with your points there. I I don't know that it's going to necessarily fall on the offensive line. I think – uh, Pat Narduzzi's defense will confuse Book at times. Um, that will create some added pressure um, and create Book to uh, hold on or force Book to hold on to the ball longer than he should. Um, 
and maybe not force that, but I guess that, that may end up being the result. And that's something that he has troubles with from time to time, though. He can certainly escape escape the pass rush at times, too. But I think that sometimes his ability to do that gets him in trouble sometimes. Uh, so I think that I, I think that's probably going to happen a couple times against uh, Pittsburgh this week. So I will take the over as well. Next question, will Pittsburgh's own Kurt Heinisch record a tackle for a loss? Brian Kelly on Monday alluded that Kurt wasn't at 100% health, but anything that has to do with going home to Pittsburgh, I don't know if Kurt's family can come to the games. I know his dad had an, a compromised immune system from battling cancer, but just being in the general area, if I just think Kurt's going to get that um, in this game. There's just no way he's not going to play well. So I'll say yes. Yeah, and if anyone's going to fight their injury, I don't think anyone's going to doubt Kurt Heinrich. <laughs> yeah. Tough as they come, and uh, he uh, certainly will want to play well in Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, I think he's averaging one tackle uh, for loss per game, um, so that would continue him um, uh on that, I guess, I don't know if it's a streak, but at least it would put him on par for his average for the season. So I will, I will say yes as well. Next one I have for us is over under 238 passing yards for Pittsburgh. Well, Pittsburgh's one of the worst rushing teams in the country. They're 70th uh, out of 77 teams that have played a game to this point. And so they're going to have to get their yards through the air. Now, a big thing to me is, is, is Kenny Pickett playing and is he healthy right. or is it Joey Yellen or is it, and, and I know they have a freshman that they're trying to work in there too. If Joey Yellen is going to be the starter and Yellen had some yards against Miami, but he also had some big mistakes. I'm going to say yes. I, even though Notre Dame is one of the top 10 teams in pass efficiency defense, I think that Pitt has to get its yardage through the air and that's what they're going to try to do. This is a game that plays into the hands of Notre Dame's defense. This is what Notre Dame does well, a game like this. But Pickett is a guy that's good enough to overcome some of that. I don't think the backup quarterback is good enough to do that. Yeah, I'm going to side with over as well. I don't, I don't know that I expect them to get in the 300-yard range, but I think they'll be able to, to get past the 238 number that I threw out there. Um, that, like you mentioned, they're going to throw a lot because they can't necessarily run the ball. Um, and uh, I don't know if that would change slightly if it's a close game, if they'd be, maybe be a little bit conservative, especially if they're playing yelling and not picking, and maybe they don't trust him as much in a close game. But um, I still think that they will go over 238 passing yards. Last one I have for us is a final score prediction. Well, I don't think it's going to be a high-scoring game. I have Notre Dame winning 23 to 12. I think there's going to be a lot of field goals on both sides. All right. You want 12s in back-to-back games. All right. That'll be, that would be interesting. Um, I'm going with Notre Dame 27, Pittsburgh 17. Um, I, I don't expect it to be very high scoring. I do think Notre Dame will be able to move the ball. Um, they had some red zone issues against uh, Louisville. Um, we'll see if they can do better against Pittsburgh with that. Pittsburgh is really good. They've only allowed one rushing touchdown in the red zone uh, this season. Um, so that it, that's kind of opposite of what Notre Dame does. Notre Dame likes to run the ball when it gets in the red zone and has had success with that. So we'll see who can win that battle. But I think Notre Dame should be able to win this, but I don't feel 
great about them winning by a very wide margin. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First question I have for us, Eric, is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. What grade would you give Tommy Reese for the Louisville game with a box that was loaded and no luck going vertical? Why not use intermediate passes and target the tight ends who are some of the most talented players on offense? And also, Eric, where did you put ND on your ballot? Well, I'll start with that um, question first so I don't forget it. I had them fourth on my ballot behind Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama. Uh, I chose to vote for the teams that hadn't played just because they were in the preseason poll, and I also – felt like there was a sense of history where you would say, um, well, so-and-so has been ranked so many weeks consecutively. Well, I don't think that should have broken just because their presidents decided, now we're going to play, not going to play. Okay, yeah, we are going to play. So I don't think it should be a penalty on the team. So I, I kept those teams. Once we were able to vote for them again, I've been voting for them. So that's where they went, number four. What grade would I give Tommy Reese? I gave him a B because I felt like there were things that were a little bit out of his control that made held the game down. One was limited possessions. Notre Dame only had seven, technically. Um, and generally, you have about 13 offensive possessions in a game. The other is execution. Uh, you know, I didn't think – I think Notre Dame had some good – wrinkles and some good game planning early to get the ball to the wide receivers and Ian Book wasn't on target. I mean, it was his fourth worst pass efficiency performance of his career. And when you're, you know, 26, 27 starts into your career, that shouldn't be. Um, Why not throw to the tight ends a little bit more? I, I think Late in the game, Notre Dame went to its safety blanket, which was its running game. I think at some point you got to figure out what you have with the wide receiver group, and 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 Louisville appeared to be vulnerable. You know, I watched a good portion of the Georgia Tech Louisville game the week before, and the freshman quarterback from Georgia Tech was throwing it down the field on, on and so you thought, okay, this is the team to try that against. And, and try to establish that because, you know, what wins you a game against Louisville, you know, the, the tight ends probably could have won that game more comfortable. But at some point when you play those teams in November, especially Clemson and North Carolina, you better be able to get it down the field. If you don't have a vertical passing game against those teams, you're going to end up with a couple losses in November. Yeah, I, I think in that vein, I think – I don't. I'm. Not, I'm pretty sure I'm not the first one to make this comparison. It kind of reminds you of the 2018 Ball State game, where it was pretty obvious that they wanted Brandon Wimbush to try to throw the ball down the field, um, and it wasn't very successful. And then Brandon Wimbush didn't uh, wasn't able to hold on to that starting spot. I don't think that will be the outcome for Ian Book, just because I don't think that they have they're, they're, there's that kind of pressure on him to to be replaced um, with the guys that are behind him. But um, in terms of 
the play calling, I would say a B minus. I don't know that I can give anyone too much higher than a, than a C when you only score 12 points. Um, but I, I do think, I, I think the execution was more to blame than the play calling in this. And, and we don't know, like, and the, and the fake field goal was Brian Kelly's play call too. Yeah. 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 Tommy Reese didn't dial up the fake field goal. Um, so, and, and it's uh, Tommy Reese to dial up a play that if he, uh, Kevin Austin gets his foot in, uh, in the back of the end zone, then, then the score's a little bit different there right before that fake field goal. So um, I think uh, that we don't, we don't necessarily know if there were opportunities to throw the ball to tight ends and Ian's just choosing other guys, you would, you would think that we're going to, we have to be getting towards a point where he will probably revert back to throwing those tight ends a lot because he does have some comfort with that. Um, so I, it's going to be interesting to see. I do think it, it makes I understand the, the emphasis on the receiver position because it's, it's what's needed. They have to be better there. Um, but um, it's kind of surprising that even, in a game that was so close that they didn't maybe revert back to become more natural to Ian at certain parts of the game. Um, and they just weren't able to have much success throwing the ball. Next question is from Samuel Ramirez at Samuel 27 RC. What's the biggest problem in the passing game? Ian book, the separation of the receivers. And he also asked why not include freshman Jordan Johnson and Xavier Watts in simple routes. Um, I think the biggest problem is not having a lot of Lindsay and Austin on the field, especially at the same time. Uh, you know, Lindsay played in the Florida State game, and I thought did a good job. And Austin only got three snaps in that game, and that was his first game back. This game, Austin got 22 snaps, and Braden got two. So I think once you get those two guys on the field and operating at a high level, it's going to open up other things in your offense. And so I think then it really becomes on – it then falls on Ian Book's shoulder, shoulders to really play at a higher level. He's 44th in the country in pass efficiency right now out of 77, and that's not anywhere near good enough especially considering the teams Notre Dame has played to this point. So he's going to have to up his game. But again, once he gets Lindsey and Austin on the field, if those guys are as good as we think they are, then I think we're going to see some movement in the passing game. Why not put Xavier Watts and Jordan Johnson in there? I, I think, again, some of it is just, you know, had Xavier Watts had a full – complement of spring practices we might see him higher on the depth chart at this point uh and the one practice that I did see him I liked him a lot and Jordan Johnson I think if he hadn't had some off the field um shortcomings with Brian Kelly in the summer we might see him a little bit higher on the depth chart but at this point it becomes kind of a race to get your chemistry good and do you want to introduce these other elements. I mean, there's part of me that thinks at some point Jordan Johnson is going to play. I just don't know when that's going to be, and I don't know that this is the week to, to try to push that formula. Yeah, I mean, to me, the chemistry is the biggest problem, and I don't know how introducing new guys into the offense that Ian Book doesn't have chemistry improves that. Now, obviously, 
there's a breaking point there. It, it doesn't matter if he has chemistry with guys that can't make plays. Um, yeah. If they're not making plays, they got to find better options to do that. Um, but I, I, so I, I, there's plenty of blame to go around. I think the, I think the lack of receiver continuity is probably the one that is the biggest concern to me. Um, we talk about, talk about Kevin Austin and Brady Lindsay. Those are your, two best athletes at the receiver position and they haven't been able to be healthy and on the field for the majority of the games. Um, when we talk about the chemistry, as kind of crazy as it sounds, I think Ben Skoranek might be the guy that Ian Book has the most chemistry with, especially off the field because of the time they spent together and the work they put in trying to get prepared for this season. Um, and that was why I was so high on Ben Skoranek going into the season. Now he, and then he had his own health issues um, and seems to be coming back into his own um, and I know he hasn't necessarily blown anyone away with his athleticism, but I think um, he's going to be able to make some plays and be a guy that you can trust throwing the ball to and, and come down with it in tight, tight uh, coverage and stuff like that. So I think there's all, every, everyone needs to play better. Um, simple as that, but um, I'm not really sure that the freshman wide receivers are, are going to be the answers um, right now, just because you do have some hope and belief in these guys that, are getting the playing time ahead of them, even though they aren't necessarily capitalizing on that so far. Then the next question we have is from Josh Melton at Josh Mel, bunch of numbers. If you're an opposing coach, don't you just load the box, blitz Ian book and dare him to beat you. Seems like Pitt would be a team with the ability to do that. Well, again, I think the most important sentence he had is Pitt would be a team with the ability to do that because Everybody always says, well, why don't they just load the box? Well, if you don't have the corners to play man-to-man, if you don't have the corners that can hold up uh, when you load the box and, and get rid of one of your safeties in that passing game, then that's that's a problem. When you kind of look at the checklist for Pitt, you know, they have the pass rush. They, I don't know that they have the corners. They have the safeties. Their corners have been picked on a little bit in the Boston College, NC State, games in particular um and i don't think they need to blitz i think pitt can get the pressure they need with their front four um and they can also put you in third and longs because they're the number one rush defense in the country so i think in this particular game this is a very good game for pitt to go to that strategy um i think that uh what ian book needs to do is he needs to handle unfamiliar looks defensive looks better than he has against Pittsburgh in the past and and certainly earlier this year and I think he needs to uh, keep them off balance enough with really executing at a high level in the passing game whether that's short passes or whether that's something a little bit deeper yeah, I don't think Book is at his worst against the Blitz. I think if he knows what's coming and, and can have a sense of what's going to happen, if he sees that and feels that Blitz right away, I think he can get rid of the ball and or um, try to find a crease in the pocket to get out of there. Um, where he struggles is when he makes his read, doesn't see the guy open that he wants to throw it to, and then starts to dance in the pocket. And what Louisville was doing at times was as soon as he made that move – out of his normal drop back, a linebacker was coming for him right, right at that instant. They, the, the linebackers were essentially keying on his movement in the pocket and knowing as soon as he sort of hesitated, 
to try and get after him. Um, and that's, I think, what uh, led to a lot of these sacks that Louisville had um, against Notre Dame this past weekend. So um, I think if anyone's going to figure it out, I think Pat Narduzzi, who's out, played against Ian Book already, um, I think he has a pretty good grasp of what Ian Book's strengths and weaknesses are. Um, so they will throw a little bit of everything at him. I think that's probably the biggest thing that I would try to do as a defensive coordinator against Ian Book is throw a lot of different looks at him and confuse him because when he's when he is confused and when he's not making his reads correctly, um, I think his whole game sort of suffers for that, um, and it really limits his ability. Next question is from at Jeff 6 Pete, I believe he means Pete Sampson, says we will miss Ian Book next year, and we will, but what if we find a QB that's capable of more than just managing the game until we absolutely need him to play? The story all summer was Brendan Clark has the talent. Thoughts on how to assess without seeing them in games then? Yeah, my first question was who Pete was. St. <laughs> uh, Pete. So, yeah, St. Pete. I, I maybe it was Pete Byrne, or I don't know. A Mayor Pete. Um, <laughs> so, um, so let's go with the Brendan Clark part of this first. That he hasn't been in the game yet, I think, is a problem. If you're looking for an alternative to book, I mean, if if he's coming into a game for a series or two because Ian lost a contact or whatever, um. I think that the advantage is even because Pitt wouldn't know or, or whatever team it was wouldn't know really what to expect from Brendan Clark. And, and that happened one year with Pat Dillingham coming into a game, maybe the biggest underdog as a backup quarterback to come on. Uh, but, but once teams scouted him, then it became a problem for Pat Dillingham. And I think, Brendan Clark against good defenses, once teams scout him, they're going to try to make him uncomfortable. So I I don't know that we want to go down that road. I think the Brendan Clark question is better for 2021. And and again, he won't be the only person in that mix. Um, So did I answer all parts of the question or do I still have a part that I didn't get to? I, I, I don't know if he wants – if he's curious if we also think that uh, – well, I guess he did say we will miss Ian Book too, um, but I, – I mean, uh, you Brent know, Clark if, Ian, quarterback? if Ian Book played for Brian Kelly from 2010 to 2013 and put up the kind of numbers that he does and so forth, I think people would look at Ian Book differently, but the – the goals and aims of this program are different now and people expect and Brian Kelly feeds that expectation that Notre Dame is going to compete for playoff spots on a fairly regular basis. And if Ian book can't get them there, I I understand why they're looking for, well, who can get them there? And, you know, Tyler Buckner may be that guy, but that's not happening before 2021 and just remember in 2022 and 2023 Ohio State and Clemson are on both those schedules yeah good luck against that uh yeah I I don't in terms of finding a capable quarterback that can do more than just manage the game I 
I don't know that Notre Dame has that on its roster right now. I, I if you brought Brendan Clark and Drew, or Drew Pine into the game this season, I don't think they're going to do better than Ian Book is doing. I think that's that's just how I see it. Um, certainly, it would have. I, I maybe that would be different if I had seen what Brendan Clark had, was able to do in, in practice going into this season, but it wasn't something I was able to see. I, no, neither of those guys had talent as recruits that made me think, okay, th- those guys need to find the field sooner rather than later in their careers. And they have, they have everything you're looking for. Now, certainly there, there are guys that I thought as recruits like Brandon Wimbush that had everything you were looking for and it didn't work out. Um, so I, I, I'm just not, I do think Notre Dame will miss Ian book. Um, I think part of the reason that Ian book is the starting quarterback and Phil Dracovic isn't here is because there was the belief that Ian book could do enough to have this team can compete for a national championship this year. Um, and you wouldn't have to worry about some of the mistakes that would come with playing a younger and inexperienced quarterback. And he isn't making those mistakes in terms of turning the ball over, but he is making mistakes in terms of not necessarily hitting receivers when they need to be hit. So um, I, I don't, I'm not sure what the story all summer about Brennan Clark having the talent. I, I, I don't know what, what, what that means exactly. I, I don't, Every time, every year, the best quarterback on our name's roster is the backup quarterback. That's just how it seems to work. Um, but And I, I don't know that uh, you have guys that will intimidate opposing defenses any more than Ian Book does um, right now. So I think that's why Notre Dame is in the situation it's in. Next question is from Jack Quinn at JQ6008. Brian Kelly has had one skill position guy drafted in the first round that his staff recruited in 11 years. Is this unit different? If so, who and how do they get the ball into his or their his or their hands more often? Well, I think the the first, I, again, I get hooked on sometimes the way the question is worded, and I think that was kind of unfair. If you're going to say in 11 years, then you need to include the guys that he inherited from Charlie that got drafted in the first round, like Michael Floyd. If you're not going to include that, then it's not 11 years. It's five or six years. Um, And there's been a lot of second rounders, uh, Chase Claypool, uh, Cole Komet, Deshaun Kaiser. You've had third rounders at Boykin and CJ Procise. And the one first rounder they're talking about is Will Fuller. And Will Fuller wasn't a first round draft pick kind of guy coming out of high school. So he developed within the system. Having said that, um, he's asking about who on this current roster could be a first-rounder. I'm not sure who's going to develop that. If I had to place a bet, I would put Michael Mayer as the guy probably most likely from this roster to do that. But I think you know Kevin Austin, Braden Lindsey, Tommy Tremble, Kyron Williams, Chris Tyree, depending on how the arc of their career goes, could certainly push their way up towards the top of the draft. I don't know about first round, but certainly could maybe be first or second day type of picks. But, um, you know, just because Mayor right now is the most likely first round draft choice doesn't mean you build your offense around him, but boy, you certainly get him on the field and give him opportunities. So, You know, again, I think when you look at Brian Kelly's offense, which Tommy Reese is still running his version of it, when it's worked best, 
is when they've had a guy that could run by cornerbacks at the outside receiver on the wide side of the field. So think about Will Fuller and Kevin Stefferson. That would put the defensive coordinator into more of a dilemma in terms of how he was going to deal with the rest of the offense. Until Notre Dame does that, I don't think that this offense is going to run on all cylinders. That's even with a great boundary receiver. I mean, Chase Claypool was a great guy into the boundary, but he would have been even better if there was a compliment. And we saw a little bit of that late last season when you had Lindsey and Claypool kind of at their maximum. So um, that's what I would like to see is, is getting the best athletes. So I think, again, Austin and Lindsey need to be on the field and then whoever else you want to throw out there. Yeah, in terms of NFL value, I mean, part of it, I mean, I think it seems like Kyron Williams and Kirst Tyree are on, on path to have pretty good careers here at Notre Dame, but value, there isn't a lot of first-round running backs that get drafted anymore. The, the value on running backs has decreased. People don't want to um, spend as much on, on running backs, so it's harder to be a first-round running back um, unless you're some kind of real freak, which Chris Tyree does have that freakish speed. Um, but I, I don't know that I, I would want to bet a lot of money on a running back from Notre Dame going in the first round. It's, I, it's not going to be a quarterback on this current roster, in my opinion. Um, it could be one of those tight ends, Tremble or Mayer. Um, and then if wide receiver, if I had to bet, I would say Kevin Austin rather than Braden Lindsey. Uh, maybe Jordan Johnson, but that's certainly too early to say for a freshman. Um, but it, it, it also depends a lot on the draft class. In my opinion, Chase Claypool should have been a first-round receiver, but – there were a lot of receivers in this draft, and so he was the 11th receiver taken in the draft, and, and he fell into the second round. Um, now, I think if maybe if they redraft right now, maybe that wouldn't be the same same outcome. Um, but I, I think uh, that Notre Dame hasn't had those different dip, enough of those difference makers at the skill position, and that's why this past recruiting class was so important to Notre Dame because it did have Jordan Johnson, Chris Tyree and Michael Mayer. And that's what they're striving to have. Um, And we will see if those guys can uh, live up to their, their lofty recruiting rankings. Next question is from Chris Buckley at Topher 15. Does ND have a screen pass that doesn't take three days to develop? Seriously though, it seems whether whenever Lindsay or Austin are in the game, it's either a deep ball or an end around seems too predictable. I'd like to know your thoughts on this. Um, well, I would, I would agree maybe in the last game, the screens didn't develop. Well, I think that at time, the screen games looked really good as far as the whole Austin Lindsay and predictability and stuff. I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, we haven't seen enough of Kevin Austin to have anything even be predictable. I mean, he played three snaps in his first game, 22 snaps in a second game. And I don't remember a lot of trickery with Kevin Austin being involved in, in those 25 snaps and Lindsay only played two in the last game. So they haven't played a lot together. Um, at the most, they would have played two snaps together this week and three snaps together against Florida state. That's at the most. Uh, so I, I think I'm going to reserve the predictability question and again, I still think those two need to be on the field. And uh, so 
I, I don't know how to answer the predictability part of it. I haven't seen that. Yeah, I think the, the sample size is too small. And when those are guys, those guys are on the field, they do things that no one else can do, essentially, or no one else has been proven the ability to do in the Rams offense. So that's why it seems like they're being asked to do these things because when when they're not out there, those things might not necessarily be happening. Um, now, obviously, we saw this past week um, even Jav- uh, Javon McKinley got an end around. Um, Avery Davis was used with a, with a fly sweep. Um, and so they're, they've experimented with using other guys more in those ways. But um, those are your best players that do those things the best. Um, so that's why they're going to be asked to do those things. I don't, I don't, it, it becomes less predictable if they can stay on the field. So I think that's, that's the answer to that. And in terms of the screen passes, I, a screen pass to a running back has to take time to develop. It's not – those aren't – there's not, There's no such thing as a quick-hitting running back screen because then there's no screen for the running back to, to run behind. Uh, you have to convince the defense uh, and give the offensive line uh, time to create the screen. Um, certainly, I'd like to see some wide receiver screens maybe with, with McKinley as a blocker and get someone the ball to them quick and let them make a play after that. But Notre Dame hasn't really opted for much of that so far this season. Next question is from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. Can a case still be made that the Notre Dame offensive line is elite despite playing four sub-500 teams, three of which played ND closer than most predicted? Personally, I think we should see how they fare in the next three games with seven or eight in the box before using the elite label. What say you? Well, I think, you know, we could just wait till the end of the season and (laughs) <laughs> and rate them if we wanted to. I mean, what we're trying to give you is a snapshot of where we think they are. And just because a team has a losing record doesn't mean they don't have some good players on their defensive line. You know, Florida State has Marvin Wilson and Josh Kando, and I think Marvin Wilson's probably going to be a first-round draft choice uh, unless his stock slides this year. And, and Josh was a guy I know Notre Dame would have loved to have as a defensive end. Um, you know, Duke had two pretty good defensive ends. Um, so I, I don't know that that's fair to just kind of rule that out, um, and just base it on the Clemson game. And if we look back at the, um, 2017 team that won the Joe Moore award, you know, they didn't have a great game against Georgia, nor did anybody else that season from an offensive line standpoint. Right. Uh, but they were an elite. I mean, they were the best offensive line in the country. And, and you judge it by watching their technique, looking at their chemistry. You know, I mean, whether, you know, whether they, you know, they're not the reason Notre Dame only scored 12 points in that game. So, in fact, they're a big reason why Notre Dame was able to sit on the ball for 755, the last 755 of the game and not give Louisville another possession. So, uh, so I think in the snapshot of where we are four games in the season, I would call them elite. Now they can progress from this point or they can regress. Yeah. I, I elite isn't a word that I love to use. Um, I, cause it, I am because I'm an elitist. <laughs> um, because I, well, how do you define elite? It, it, I guess, in my opinion, I, I would say it, your unit is elite if it gives you a chance to win every game. Um, and I think Notre Dame's offensive line gives them a chance to win every game. Um, 
So that would, that if that's how you wanted to define elite, then yeah, if, if elite is top 10, um, are there 10 other offensive lines that you like better um, than Notre Dame's right now? I'm not sure that that's the case. I, I don't, um, that's why we rely on the Joe Moreward folks who, who take um, such a serious and in-depth look at the offensive lines on a weekly basis, because it's not something that the average fan is doing. It's not something that even dedicated offensive line reporters like myself do. Like I, I, I'm not, I couldn't, I couldn't name three offensive linemen on probably any other offensive line in the country. I don't, it's just not where my focus is on a weekly basis. Um, but we, we know the outcomes and we know how they perform against other teams as a whole. Um, so I think um, if you're elite, um, there aren't many teams that are going to find, uh, provide a level competition for you. So I, I, I don't know that Notre Dame is going to be able to prove that it's elite. If you're, if you're only worried about how they play against elite defensive lines, there's only, there's only going to be two or three games a year that you're going to be judging them on. And I think um, while that is fair to um, cr- criticize them or compliment them based on how they play in those games, I think, um, every offensive line runs into similar issues where they aren't as good against better defensive. Line. Um, I would say in general, it's easier to be a, have a better def- good defensive line than it is to have a good offensive line. Um, now that's not necessarily the case at Notre Dame because they always have good offensive lines. Um, but I think uh, it's certainly, I think we're going to have a better sense of exactly how good Notre Dame's offensive line is after the next three games. Um, but I don't, to me, waiting to say how good Notre Dame offensive line has been until they play the three next games. Um, <laughs> it kind of defeats the purpose of us having a weekly podcast and writing stories after every game. If we can't update how the team is playing, whether it's good or bad on a weekly basis. Next question is from Joe at Joey Salvatore. Will Notre Dame cover the spread against Pittsburgh? Well, um, I would be a hypocrite if I said no, because, um, I predicted 23 to 12 and I think the line today was 10 and a half. So that would be just over the line. So I'm saying, yes, they will cover the spread. I uh, think this is a stay away game. I would not be placing any money on either team. <laughs> Notre Dame Pittsburgh. Um, I predicted a 10 point margin, which actually wouldn't cover the spread if you get it at 10 and a half. Um, so I will, I would lean towards no, I, I just don't, I, I, it's there's too many factors going into this game of what we don't necessarily know about how Notre Dame will perform against Pittsburgh to feel strongly that Notre Dame will cover the spread. But um, Notre Dame has has had a number of games already that haven't necessarily gone as we would have predicted beforehand. So I don't know that even we're the best experts in terms of trying to give you any advice of how Notre Dame will do versus the spread. Next question is from Frank Sarah at Frank Sarah three. Since Notre Dame doesn't have a long passing game, do you think Notre Dame will use the tight ends more against Pittsburgh? Um, again, I get caught up in the way the question was asked since they don't have a long passing game. They certainly haven't had to this point, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't continue to try to develop one. Now, do I think they'll use the tight ends more this game? Yes, but not because of the failure of a long passing game. I think they'll use the tight ends because they want to run the ball against the number one rush defense in the country. And I think at times they're going to use their tight ends to chip the defensive ends to slow them down a little bit in their pass rush. 
for Pittsburgh. And, and so I think the tight ends could be very useful in the game plan on Saturday. Yeah, I, I think the, the concern I would have there against Pittsburgh is they do have good safeties, and if their safeties are ball hawks, you don't want to be throwing over the middle a lot And if the safeties are going to anticipate throws at your tight ends. Even if you have good tight ends um, that can beat those guys in coverage, if the safeties have a beat on where Ian's going with the ball, they can beat those tight ends to the spot and be in position to make plays. So I think Notre Dame, if they're going to use their tight ends more, I would try to lean on trying to get those guys on the edge versus uh, – um, uh, threatening uh, Pittsburgh in the middle of the field. Um, but I, I do think they need to be involved more. I'm not really sure. Like, I think it's the thing we were talking about earlier. If, if they're trying to – they're really trying to develop something with the receivers and they know they can kind of sort of fall back on the tight ends when they need to. Um, and we'll see. I, I would think with Pittsburgh's defense, this should be a game that you're probably going to need the tight end. So I think they will probably be involved at, at a greater – um, level than they have in, in a couple of the last games. Uh, next question is from the Jackal at the underscore Jack attack. Where is Tommy Tremble and why isn't he involved more in the offense? Well, among Notre Dame skill players, only Javon McKinley and Ian Book have played more snaps and he is Notre Dame's leading receiver still with a mere 10 catches, that's that's amazing when you look at the leaders from some of the other teams that Notre Dame is playing. Right. Uh, there's some balance, but also they haven't completed as many passes as maybe we would consider for a third-year starting quarterback. But Tommy Tremble's not going anywhere. He's going to be involved. And again, I think last game was about trying to develop a part of the team that would, had fallen behind which was the wide receivers. I think this week Tommy Tremble will be at least involved in blocking, if not get some matchups uh, to his liking that maybe where he gets the ball and stay as the leading receiver. Yeah, he's part of a struggling passing game, so it just doesn't feel like he's involved enough. Um, he's accounted for one-sixth of Notre Dame's reception, so he's <laughs> for as little as he's been involved in, in terms of like – I guess the perception of not getting the ball enough, he's still doing more than anyone else in the passing game. Um, and he's a critical part of the running game. I, I'm interested to see what Notre Dame can do in terms of using him more in play action. I think Notre Dame has lacked in taking advantage of its good running game with a play action game as a part of that. Um, I'd like to see more of that moving forward for Notre Dame. Um, so I think uh, Tommy Tremble could be a candidate to have an increased role. I think, more plays where you line him up as fullback and just um, kind of have him run out into the flat and get him the ball real quick and let him get some yards after the catch. I think that would be easy yardage for Notre Dame. Um, so I think there are some opportunities to get Tommy Tremble more involved. Um, it's just the, the passing game needs to be better. They're not going to call as many passes when it's struggling the way it is. Um, and they're going to try and get the ball to the receivers because they need someone to step up there. Next question is from Ken in Pensacola. Do you think ESPN's latest ND ranking – which is off base in my opinion, that's Ken saying that, will motivate the, re the Irish for the rest of the season. And I believe he means the uh, number 11 ranking in the FPI um, from ESPN. Um, well, I mean, it's certainly seven spots different than where I rank Notre Dame. So I would uh, say I think it's off base, but I mean, we'll find out in these next few games where, where they stand. I mean, 
right now, so much of ranking teams is guesswork. You've got teams having some teams having to do with COVID outbreaks and stopping their season right now. Florida is in that mode. I saw that Florida on, uh, on Tuesday paused all football activities. Um, you have teams playing different number of games. Uh, Notre Dame right now has actually, when you start to look at the four teams they don't play this year, they may have gotten one of the easiest ACC schedules, even though they play Clemson and North Carolina. They don't play NC State, Virginia, Virginia Tech, or Miami. And three of those teams are pretty good uh, So and ranked. So, um, you know, and I, I don't think the players are even looking at the FPI or whatever <laughs> yeah. you know, right now. I, I think, you know, they're considering themselves the number three team in the country. And um, I don't think it's even on their radar at all. Yeah, I, I covered the team, and I had no idea what it, their ranking was. So I, if I don't know what it was, I would be surprised if they knew what it was. Um, I think only scoring 12 points against Louisville should provide the proper motivation. I don't think that they're going to be turning to an FPI ranking for that. I mean – I don't even know what FPI – why that's even relevant. Well, I, the the point of it is, from my understanding, is it's a predictive uh, – statistic and it tries to predict what will happen. And I know like, I believe they said Notre Dame has a 1% chance of going undefeated, which <laughs> the way Notre Dame played last week seems pretty, it doesn't seem that far off. Um, well, anybody that's playing Clemson would be right. Clemson. Yeah, no, I, I, that's not Notre Dame's fault. It's more of a product of Clemson being on the schedule and potentially twice um, than, uh, uh, than anything. So um I don't. I don't put a stock, a lot of stock in predictive rankings because that's why we play. That's why they play the games. Uh, I'd rather uh, talk about what happened in those things and try to um, come up with stats that would be predictive. But I understand that there is an interest in that, um, and I think you can sort of think about it, and, and, and it could add some things to the conversation. But um, it's certainly, I don't think, going to be a part of Notre Dame's motivation moving forward. Next question is from Bob Carroll at B Carroll three. Why does the Notre Dame punt team not fair catch the ball more consistently when there is no return play being run risk an unfavorable bounce or lost yards? Well, I think some of it is there's been a little bit of a revolving door back there. Uh, Lawrence keys wasn't tearing up the world. He had muffed the punt um, already. And then he was in concussion protocol and I believe still was as of Monday. And even if he got out this week, I don't think he would, that's where they would put him right away is put him back at the punts. So you've had Salerno back there. They've looked at Kevin Austin. Um, I think if they're going to try to be dynamic and try to return some, they would use Austin. I think Salerno, they just would like him to catch it. Um, And, you know, I think once they get a little bit more consistent back there, they'll catch the ball. They have, they do miss Chris, um, fair catch Fink. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, punt return, you have to have confidence in there. If they're using guys that haven't had experience, a lot of experience in games, it, it's understandable that they might not have the most confidence yet. Um, I would need to take a closer look at the punts, but what, from what I remember against Louisville, they were punting very short and the that was part of the reason like 
Matt Salerno couldn't run up and make the fair catch in time to get, get the ball before it got there. Now maybe you move him up, but you don't want to move him too far up because then if they punt it over his head, then you, the punt's going to go even longer. Um, so I think it's a little combination of all those things. Um, and I, I think um, I think Notre Dame is willing to lose some of those yards rather than losing the football and having a guy sort of run up there and, and make a tougher catch um, than uh, losing some of the – and potentially losing the football – um, rather than uh, letting the ball bounce and lose a, lose a few yards here or there. Next one is from JM. Uh, another question from NG Jeff 6 Why is winning hard for Brian Kelly at Notre Dame, but fun for Clemson and Dabo Sweeney even prior to Trevor Lawrence? Seems to me it's trying, it's time to find a way to make it fun. Does this mindset seem to affect the players too? Do you think it alters how they view the games that should be easy victories? I think it's fun at Clemson because they have the smoking pig right down the road from them. They could go celebrate there. I, you know, I, I, I think the whole winning is hard thing is something Brian Kelly throws out there to defend an ugly victory, you know, and that's a good thing. And it's, it's, it's not Brian Kelly didn't make that like that make up that saying that is a cliche that all football coaches use. I, typed in the words Dabo Sweeney winning football is hard. And I found an article from January 10th that quote from the New York times winning football games is hard Dabo Sweeney. So it's not like Brian Kelly. And that's after Clemson plays really, really good football. So uh, I think that it's just a cliche that coaches fall back onto. I don't think it informs the mindset of the team. Right. I think they will parrot Brian Kelly sometimes just because they don't want to get into why the game was ugly. Um, and so they're trying to kind of deflect that and just kind of move on. And then they'll pick it apart in private rather than saying, well, you know, uh, Javon McKinley was dropping passes or whatever. Um, you know, they're not going to do that. Yeah. And the, you can't come out and say, well, that was easy after you won a 12, seven game, because then you're just lying. And if you're celebrating it too much, people are going to be criticizing you for celebrating it too much. So, it looks fun at Clemson because they're killing people. And that is fun to do when you're playing football. Um, and if Notre Dame was doing that, it would look a lot more fun um, than what a 12, seven uh, victory over Louisville would look like. Last question we have is from Charles W. Wolf, an email that Eric received with the extra year of eligibility granted by the NCA. Has there been any announcement on a change of the scholarship limit for 2021? If not, is there a timetable for when a decision could be made? All they've announced is that it won't be at 85. They haven't announced how this all is going to be calculated uh, versus the, the recruiting class you're bringing in. But there's, there's some math problems ahead because at some point you're going to have to get back down to 85 scholarships. The presumption when they made this rule and, and gave everybody the year of eligibility was that 2021 and 2022 you would be able to be over 85 and there could be more of a natural fallback to 85 and 2023 but you may end up with tiny tiny recruiting classes if you have to do that by 2022 and I think that's what they have to figure out the other thing there's a couple other things at play here you're not guaranteed financial aid in getting that extra year of eligibility it's going to be up to the school. So you have eligibility, but they may say, hey, we don't have room for you. Bye. 
and then you have to try to transfer somewhere else that for someone to give you a scholarship. So this whole thing is pretty messy. And I'm wondering if they're going to walk some of this back at some point, because when they made this declaration, the thought was that no more than 76 or 76 teams would be playing in the fall and that they may not even make it through their seasons. And so they wanted to make it easy for people to opt out. And I think, honestly, the only people that probably should get the extra year of eligibility are the opt-outs. Now, if you have, and, and maybe your freshman who you would have redshirted, I don't know. It's just, it's just such a big mess. But I, I think it's going to take all spring to kind of sort through this and figure out how they're going to eventually get back down to 85 scholarships. Because you're going to be way over 100 next year on a lot of teams. Yeah, I, I, I still don't get it how it totally works. Because I, I was trying to get more information when Jordan Jenmark Heath said that he wasn't playing this year um, and he was going to transfer um, and he would graduate. He'd, so he'd still be on Notre Dame's team technically, although he wouldn't be playing this year. Um, and the feedback that I got was that it made it seem like the extra year wouldn't go to people that don't play this year. Um, so like, I thought that he would, because he, he would get this extra year, he would necessarily, he would technically have two years of eligibility to play at, uh, at whatever school he chose. And he ended up choosing UCLA. Um, and it's not totally clear to me that that will be the case based off of the, the, the questions that I asked the NCAA um, now they always tell you that every case is different. And so they can't really tell you how a case will play out exactly. Um, so they try to give you general rules. So I don't think if any of this has been thought out or planned out and, and established um, when it was first announced in August, they said that the financial aid of fall sports, senior fall sports, senior student athletes who take advantage of the additional year, an extended clock will not count against team limits in 2021-22. Now, I don't know if that means the academic year 21-22 or if that means both 2021 and 22. So I don't know. To me, the simple solution is just anyone that's taking an, acad an extra year, that scholarship doesn't count. Like, you don't have to change the scholarship number of 85, but if a guy is using an, an extra year, that guy just doesn't count against you. And that would be the simple solution in my mind. I don't, I don't, maybe there's some flaw in that, that I'm not um, figuring out and, and teams would be able to maybe take advantage of that for some reason. But I think that um, this shouldn't be that hard, but I don't think it's, it's all planned out. And I don't think the coaching staff necessarily knows um, at, any, at any school exactly how that's going to all play out. All right, that's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or a rating if you like what you hear. Tom Noy and Carter Carls will be back on Sunday with a recap of Saturday's Notre Dame-Pittsburgh game. Stick with NDInsider.com throughout the week for all your pregame and postgame coverage needs.